Right, well, uh, the last couple of weeks we've been um, just beginning a, 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 a bit of a series on the life of Abraham. And if you have your Bibles, would you like to open up this morning to um, Genesis chapter 11? And um, we'll use these verses, which actually uh, Rod um, shared with us from last week as a bit of a launching pad. So it's uh, chapter 11 and verse 27. It says, um, this is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. And Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. And she was the daughter of Haran, and the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. And Terah took his son Abraham, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and the wife of his son Abraham, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. And Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. And the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. The Bible um, primarily presents truth, truth to us in uh, the context or in the framework of, um, of people's lives. And so as we read through Scripture, we read about Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah, of Cain and Abel, of Joseph and Daniel and Moses and Isaac and Rebecca and a whole host of other um, characters. And, and the Bible is very real about people's lives. It, it exposes their uh, strengths and their weaknesses. It, the book is basically a Bible full of biographical sketches. And what happens to these uh, people that lived in a different time and in a different place to us, um, their lives, however, still communicate something of, of life to us if we will allow them to speak. And if we um, go beyond just the veneer of what is presented, um, there is something in each person's story that is uh, at different times in our lives able to help us. And if we look closely, uh, we find aspects of our own story in their story. And that's why um, Rowan sharing this morning, um, just telling us something of his story, of his journey, we can, um, I guess, glean some encouragement from that, if not now, perhaps sometime down the track when we find ourselves in a similar situation. 
It's my conviction that of all the people of the Bible, um, the story of Abraham, other than the story of, of Jesus, has perhaps the most to say to us. Um, Abraham, um, or Abraham, Abraham, uh, the word Abraham simply means father or daddy. Um, the word or name Abraham um, means uh, father of many or big daddy. So you've got little daddy and big daddy. And um, we'll look at why uh, God actually changed his name possibly next week. There is a reason for a name change, but as I'm talking this morning, I will quite possibly shift between both Abraham and Abraham, still the same, same person. Abraham's a really fascinating character. He is um, a key p- person in history. In fact, it's actually quite difficult um, to understand human civilization without at least having some kind of background knowledge as to who Abraham is. Um, there are followers of three world religions, Christianity, um, Judaism and Islam, who all look to Abraham as, um, as their father. We all claim that our lineage um, uh, flows from, and, and in fact does flow from, um, this man from this place called Mesopotamia, which is uh, modern-day Iraq, where the Gulf War was fought. That was where he was from. You know, some 4,000 years ago, we, uh, you know... A large proportion of the world's population actually identify with this guy as being uh, his children. We're not his children unless we're we're, uh, perhaps Jewish by natural lineage, but by a spiritual lineage, we identify ourselves as his children and him as our, our father. And perhaps for me, the most profound statement um, in the Bible in reference to Abraham is that it's mentioned three times in um, James chapter 2, verse 23, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 7, and Isaiah 41 and verse 8, that this man Abraham was a friend of God. I mean, if we just even pressed the pause button for a moment and thought about what that means, that a human being could actually be God's friend. And again, we can kind of gloss over that kind of statement and say, oh, Abraham was a friend of God. Um, But what is it about this man that singled him out as somebody that God would identify, that this wasn't just an ordinary person that God had some kind of connection or relationship to? This man was unique in the fact that God identified him as being a person with whom God enjoyed and experienced friendship with. As we're going to look a little bit at this man's background and his life, you realize that Abraham wasn't defined as a friend of God because he lived a perfect moral life. Perhaps we're sitting there thinking, well, only people that that achieve incredibly high levels of moral perfection could ever possibly be a friend of God. What makes the story of Abraham so encouraging for me is that um, that Abraham um, 
who is classified as being the father of faith, was a man that struggled with doubt. Abraham was a man that heard the voice of God and yet his misinterpretation and his misunderstanding of what it was that God spoke to him about has been probably one of the most significant um, catalysts for conflict on the, on, the, on the planet for a long, long time. All of the conflict that's taking place in the Middle East right now between um, you know, that, that little slither of land in Palestine is all because this man Abraham, the friend of God, who heard the voice of God, misunderstood and mis- misinterpreted what God had said and tried to work that out in his own way and stuffed it up big time and... Generations of people have been paying the, paying the consequences for that misunderstanding ever since. And yet he remains the friend of God. And he's a man who um, so clearly heard from God to, um, to go to Canaan. And, and he begins the journey, but then he kind of gets stuck partway through. And then he goes off on another detour when it kind of gets a little bit tense. And he's still the friend of God. And I look at the life of Abraham, the friend of God, and I get incredibly encouraged. And I think there is hope for someone like me. Abraham's story... um, begins here in chapter 11 where we've uh, just read. The Bible begins with this, uh, excuse me, I'm English, I have to have my cup of tea. I haven't had a cup of tea yet and it's my first one for the day. Oh my God, it's lovely. (laughs) Earl Grey. (laughs) I'm surprised at the Olympic ceremony there was no reference to tea. Was 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 there any reference to tea in the Olympic ceremony, the opening ceremony? I thought they would have all just sat down, <laughs> sat down in the middle with a, with a cup of tea and a biscuit and um, that would have been it and the English would have been very, very happy, you know. So the, 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 the book of Genesis begins with an explosion of God's incredible creative power and the crowning glory of, um, of God's handiwork is humanity, Adam and Eve. And man and woman uh, for, um, formed in the image and likeness of God, um, live in harmony with their creator. They're living in harmony with one another and they're living in harmony with the created environment. It's what, um, they lived in a, in a, a world that was um, defined, the Hebrew word for, for that describes this environment of bliss that we look at in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is this beautiful Hebrew word called shalom. Shalom um, means harmony. It means, and I love this definition, it means nothing broken, nothing missing. Everything is in its right place. And so for two uh, wonderful chapters uh, in the Bible, the world is as God intended it to be. However, shalom is quickly lost and forfeited. 
and the world descends into violence and, and chaos and corruption and, and, and everything is broken and everything is missing. It's like this, we've gone from harmony to, um, to discord. And yet in those few uh, chapters, those opening chapters between Genesis 1 and 11, there are a couple of rays of hope, some glimmers of hope in the midst of this, this um, dysfunction that has gripped uh, humanity. First and foremost is this little pinprick of hope that occurs after the fall. God gives kind of this vague hint, this, this vague promise of the seed that will come from, from the woman that will, and again, it's all very vague and very hazy, but there is this hint that one day a redeemer will come and will restore shalom and the world will be put right. Everything will be as God has intended it to be. And there's just this little little flicker of hope there in Genesis chapter 3. Even despite man's um, disconnection from God, God throws in this little kind of ray of hope. The other ray of hope is found in Genesis chapter, chapter uh, 4 and verse uh, 25 and 26. Humanity has um, rejected God and, um, as I say, gone into this thing of chaos and, and violence. And in verse 25 and, uh, 20, um, is it, yeah, 25 and 26... It says that Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. And Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. And at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. So there is this re-engagement again with God. There is this cry that begins to emerge once again from humanity uh, towards God. There is Once again, there is an acknowledgement of God on the earth because up until this time, it's almost God, had, uh, humanity had built up a barrier, a resistance to, a stay away from us kind of uh, siege mentality against God. And yet with Seth, there was this line within the human family that began to call out to God. And so the knowledge of God, as you kind of go through these early chapters, um, through the line of Seth, um, the, the, um, the knowledge of God is retained throughout the earth and the flood comes and, um, and through Noah's uh, three sons and their families through the line of a man called Shem, there is the retention at least on the earth of the knowledge of God. It's this little flicker of hope. But by the time we kind of leave um, Genesis chapter, chapter uh, 6 and 7 and come to chapter 11 of Genesis, God has been forgotten. Humanity is no longer conscious of or giving any place or acknowledgement to God whatsoever. 
And this line of, of Seth, which is, which is kind of extended through Noah and through, through, um, through Shem, um, finds itself in Genesis chapter 11 with this family, Terah and Abraham, Abraham and uh, Abraham's wife and nephew. And this is the last indication in Scripture of, of this line through whom at least there was some acknowledgement of God. But by the time we come to Genesis chapter 11, and you can check this out in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2, Terah and Abraham, like Rod shared last week, are idol worshippers. They've substituted the worship of the, of the creator for the created. The name Terah literally means moon. And Terah and Abraham came from a place called Ur, which is in, I mentioned in modern-day Iraq, which at that time was the centre of um, moon worship. And so those who come from this, through this family line who at least had previously had some knowledge of worship were now worshipping idols. And to make things worse, Abraham's wife, Sarah, or Sarai at the time, is barren. And so this family line through at least there had been something of the knowledge of God is now coming to an end. And God is out of the picture. So at that time, planet Earth is literally godless. God with a capital G. And now, because this family line is coming to an end and Sarah is barren, there is no hope. This is what a guy by the name of... Um, of uh, Walter Brueggemann, who's a um, theologian who I know you all read regularly. Um, he has a commentary on Genesis. And he just this wonderful statement. He says, The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. The text tells us there is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. The human race... And human history has just hit a dead end. This is it, folks. The promise of a redeemer given in Genesis chapter 3 is unlikely to be fulfilled because any understanding or knowledge of God, the flame of that has flickered out because Terah and Abraham who come from this line that at least have that heritage, have substituted the living God for idol worship. It's a moment of crises and despair for the planet. But then something absolutely extraordinary happens, and Rod shared this last week. Into the midst of this godless environment, God comes and speaks to Abraham. And we don't know the dynamics of really how God spoke. 
Um, I suspect it was in some kind of audible way. But there was, there was a, an experience or an encounter that this moon-worshipping, and I call him very reverently, geriatric has with God. And in that moment, because of Abraham's response and yielding to that voice, there is a renewed hope for humanity. And so God comes to this idol worshipping um, man. Abraham is not a good guy. There's nothing that's actually qualified him for this experience or this, this encounter. There's nothing special or unique about it. In fact, everything about Abraham disqualifies him, probably in a natural way of thinking, from actually being a recipient of the voice of God. But what this is, is God acting graciously toward a world that has utterly and totally rejected him. And if, if Sarah's barren womb is a metaphor for hopelessness, then, then God's voice coming to an undeserving idol worshipper is a metaphor for grace. Does that make sense? Am I good? God comes at the moment in human history when everything seemed to have been lost. And getting back to this thought about Abraham being defined as the friend of God and the prototype by which we model our lives upon, is this, is Abraham is a friend of God, not because of his moral perfection, but because Abraham encapsulates the kind of spirit that God looks for. In other words, God looks behind the veneer of a person's life and he sees something that is going on within that human heart. And even in the midst of the struggle and the, the, um, the, the mess and the, the, even the apparent um, rebellion of a person's life, God sees beyond the veneer of that. And when God sees something of a heart that is orientated towards him, God identifies that person as a friend. Let me, um, let's look at Genesis 12 in those couple of verses again, one to four. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord told him. This voice that God, that, that Abraham heard was both disruptive and disturbing. For, just for a moment, put yourself in Abraham's world. Abraham is 75. 
that's old. Even the fact that he lived, um, you know, into his uh, mid-100s, he's still, 75 is still a relatively old age. He's wealthy. He's settled and he's comfortable. And yet this voice breaks into his world and calls him out of that which he is familiar with, that which provides his security and his stability and for his welfare. And God says to him, I want you to uproot and I want you to move out. I want you to be different from the world in which you have lived in. This voice comes to Abraham and challenges him to live a life of adventure and calls him into a life of uncertainty. And despite the fact that he undoubtedly felt inadequate for the task, something within Abraham responded to that voice of disruption and discomfort and he picked himself up and he moved out. And that, folks, is what I believe defined Abraham as a friend of God. And what is it that defines us if we are to be a friend of God? It's this. It's the fact that when God comes and breaks into our lives as he does to interrupt and to disturb and to challenge and to inspire us and call us out of that which is comfortable, that which is familiar, that which we are entrenched in, that which provides us with security. The moment that voice comes, even though it's painful and even though it may cost us, and even though we pick ourselves up and embark on that journey and in that journey we stumble and we fall and we go off on detours, it is that willingness to pick ourselves up and move in response to whatever it is that God calls us to that makes us, like Abraham, friends of God. I was um, 18, uh, nearly 19 years old, and um, I was uh, living my life. Um, I was kind of in this place of tension. Going to church because I'd um, seen something about Jesus that had grabbed my attention. And yet I was still um, loyal to uh, my friends, um, to my lifestyle, um, to my, my world, to that which gave me identity and gave me security. It was one particular night, um, I was, you know, Paul had his um, on the road to Damascus experience. I had my on the road to the Criterion Hotel experience. <laughs> the Criterion Hotel is a bar in, uh, in the city of Newcastle that has quite a reputation. A, a bad one too, yeah. Oh, you live, you live there. <laughs> Yeah, it has it has a repu- it has a reputation. <laughs> and one particular night, I am walking towards the Criterion Hotel, and God disrupts and interrupts 
and breaks into my world. And I, I call it a voice, but it was, I'll say, it was more of an awareness, a consciousness of God hit me. And it wasn't an audible spoken voice, but it might as well have been an audible voice because what I heard um, was so out of left field for me. And what I heard, the impression, the consciousness, the awareness that I had was this, as I'm walking towards the Criterion Hotel, my world, my friends, my identity, my security was this. Stephen, tonight you will choose your destiny. You can go to the Criterion Hotel or you can turn around and you can walk back home. With every step, this sense of the communication of God just closed in on me. And I knew that tonight was my night of decision and choice. The dilemma for me was the Criterion Hotel represented my life and my world. It was my identity, my friends, my relationships, my loves and my passions. And I knew I had to make a choice in response to this disruptive encounter that I was having. And I could have very well said, it's too hard to turn back home because home for me represented all that I didn't want to be. Home represented to me was, I go back there, I lose who I, who I have become of who I am. And to go back here, I lose my identity. I, I lose my friends. I lose my world. I was fortunate in the fact that I knew, I knew so little, but I'd seen something of Jesus sufficiently to understand that despite the fact that I didn't know what it would mean to walk back there, there was something that had captured my heart. And while I knew there was a price to be paid for turning my back on that world, there was something about Jesus that just captured me. And I turned around and I, I just, I mean, I must, I must have looked a nutcase, you know, kind of. I just turned around and I walked back home. And I'd love to be able to tell you I walked back home and I was instantaneously changed and I didn't. I went through months of absolute despair. But God broke in, disrupted my world, grabbed my attention, attention, and I have never, ever once in my life regretted that moment. And there have been subsequent moments. 
for anybody who's journeyed with Jesus long enough to know that it's more than just one of those disruptions. I share, you know, like for those of you who know, two and a half years ago, I was living in my world where I had Sundays were mine, weekends were mine, I had money in the bank. I earned an income. I was no longer in ministry. If, if people were having a crisis, I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Who cares? I don't, I don't go to church anymore. I, I'm, this is what people, in the, they read the Sunday paper. It's fantastic. And then God disrupts and God comes and challenges and says, are you willing to pay the price of giving that up? The job that you love, rebuilt your identity around your, um, your new career, are you willing to give that up? Are you give, willing to give up this nice little nest egg that you're building? Are you willing to walk away from, are you willing to walk away from your four-bedroom house, nice big house in the suburbs, uh, with the media room and, you know, and go and live in a city somewhere small. So it happens on a regular basis. God, see the story of Abraham and what made Abraham a friend of God was he allowed God to interrupt and disturb his world. And whenever we do that, God goes, that's my Annette, my friend. Matt, my friend. Bethany, my friend. He's not looking for moral perfection. He's just looking for this heart that says, oh God, I don't know what this might mean for my life, but if you insist... I'll I'll walk away from father's house. I'll walk away from my country. I'll walk away from um, my security. I'll walk away from it and I'll walk into whatever it is that you've got for me. That's the first thing that helps us build friendship with God. The second thing, I've got a great quote quote from Miroslav Volf. Would you like to hear it? He says, the courage to break his cultural and familial ties and abandon the gods of his ancestors out of allegiance to a god of all families and cultures was the original Abrahamic revolution. In the same way, Christians depart from their original culture. Christians can never be, first of all, Asians or Americans, or Russians, or Tutsis, and then Christians. Christians are Christians first. Christians take a distance from the gods of their own culture because they give their ultimate allegiance to the God of all cultures and its promised future. But now in Christ, departure is no longer a spatial category it takes place within the culture, cultural space one inhabits. 
It involves neither a modern attempt to build a new heaven out of the world nor a post-model restlessness that fears to arrive anywhere. When Christians respond to the call of the gospel, they put one foot outside of their culture while the other one remains firmly planted in it. Christians' distance is not flight from one's original culture but a new way of living within it because of the new vision of peace and joy they have in Christ. It's a great statement. And the other thing that marked Abraham as a friend of God and what marks us as as friends of God is this ability to live in the gap between promise and reality. You see, God comes in Genesis 12, and he comes to him again in Genesis chapter 15, and he gives him the promise of a land, of a territory, of a son, and of of a nation. And Abraham journeys into that, but he never actually sees it in all its fullness. In Hebrews chapter 11, and I'll finish on this point. Sorry, I've gone a little bit. It says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Then in verse 13 to 16, all these people, Abraham and the other heroes of faith that are mentioned in in chapter 11 of Hebrews, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them from a distance and welcomed them. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they are looking for a country of their own. They're actually what we are looking for and what we dream of passionately and what we contribute towards in our day-to-day world is we long and crave for and believe for the restoration of shalom. We look forward to a world where there is nothing broken and nothing is missing, where the poor are cared for and all the wrongs of this world and the injustices of this world are put right. We long for that and we we work and we pray and we believe for that day and for that moment. But the truth is we live in the place, the tension, the gap between promise and reality. But we don't give up. We just keep on doing what we know God has said for us to do. And you know, we know what that's like. Sometimes it's the most frustrating, disappointing place to be in, in this place of where the promise is not yet seen. But we 
have this Abrahamic spirit, this attitude, this posture towards God and towards the promises that he's made and towards life and towards humanity that says we will not give up. We will persevere and we will continue to believe. And when we do that, I don't know why I'm so emotional this morning. When we do that, God says, you're my friend. You're not morally perfect. When we have the audacity to believe that little idol worshippers like us, and let's face it, we've all got our little idols tucked away somewhere. Whatever form our idol, little idol worshippers like us, however we've heard the voice of God, and we've responded to that voice in a frail way and we journey and we stuff up and we, we get detoured and we get stuck in Haran, which is halfway between Ur and Canaan. And we settle and God prompts us and comes to us. And when we take, capture that spirit, we go, we're audacious enough to believe that it's actually about the voice of God and not about us. And when we respond unconditionally to that voice, even if it sets us at odds with our culture and interrupts and disturbs our, our comfort zones, but we pick ourselves up anyway and we leave the life that we'd like to live in pursuit of a greater dream that God has for this world. When we do that, and thirdly, when we are able to just reconcile ourselves to the tension of believing the promise, even though it's not yet real for us, when we do those three things, God looks at us and endorses us with what I think must be the most powerful words we could ever hear. It's Naomi, friend of God. Michael, friend of God. Christine, friend of God. What higher accolade, what greater reward could we ever receive than having God view us and name us as his friend? I can't, I can't think of anything else bigger or better than that. And that's in a little bit of a nutshell why God says, Abraham, the idol worshipper. Abraham, who stuffed it up and gave birth to an Ishmael and created all the chaos in the Middle East. Abraham, who got detoured and lied about his wife because he was afraid of what would happen to him. That's my friend. Man, that's beautiful. And this is what we're going to be looking at over the next number of weeks or months or years. <laughs> what it means to capture the spirit of Abraham and what kept him going on the journey. Any, any questions or comments this morning?
Must be that time of the month. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, I do. <laughs> and it just, maybe it's a response. What, what does this elicit within you? What does, does this encourage you? Does it inspire you? Does it help you frame things? Yeah, should be working. Just, oh, it's a comment. Um, just Hebrews, you know, the chapter on faith is in a most amazing chapter. But just to think that, I mean, you think of that's history and past characters and so on. But for us too, you know, there are promises that we may never see. And people you pray for, you may never see the result of or you never hear about it. But I think it just gives us faith to, to know that God's got everything under his radar, and um, we just have to do the do the actions and pray and have faith to believe. That's right. Beautiful. Anybody else? No. It, the one thing that I can just say is that when we look at God, we think that we have to get our life right first before God will accept us. And um, when we look at this story, we can see that how God does reach out to us and cause us to himself. Mm. Can I share something with you um, that's potentially extremely controversial? Extremely, extremely controversial. But please don't stone me and call me a heretic. There was a group of us that met um, a few weeks ago to discuss this series on the life of Abraham. And one of the things we talked about, I raised, one of the profound statements of the Bible is this, that God, so Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham believed the voice that came to him and God then declared him righteous. And I threw out the question. See, I'm of a theological position that believes that um, we are only in right standing on the basis of our relationship through Jesus. That's very much where I'm firmly positioned. But the question of Abraham's life raises a really interesting question, and that is he heard a voice, he heard God speak, and he responded to that voice, and he yielded to it. And it was declared to him as righteousness, that is, he's in right relationship with God because of that obedient step, with the level of knowledge that he had of God at that moment in time. We discussed it, and, and, and I said, you know, he wasn't believing God for the sacrifice of Christ. He was just taking the knowledge that he had and yielding to that. And we had this really interesting discussion as to what does that mean? Does that mean that somebody who doesn't yet believe in Jesus, but hears the voice of God coming into their world, and as they respond to that in their own way, that God marks them as righteous, but will, I believe, would have to ultimately lead them to a revelation of Jesus. But we had this interesting theological debate 
The next morning, I go to, uh, I, I still do project work at Casey, and, and, uh, and one of my colleagues there um, said to me, said, Steve, how's church going? I said, oh, it's going great, really enjoying it, wonderful group of people, blah, blah. She said, no, but what's happening? I said, oh, we're doing this, that, and the other. She goes, yeah, but what's, what's going on at the moment? And I went, well, what do you want to know? He said, well, what's, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I said, oh, we're starting a series about Abraham. It'll be really interesting. So what's really interesting about the life of Abraham then? And I said, oh, there's lots. I mean, oh, it's just really, fa- yeah, but what? And I said, well, oh. I said, we had a really interesting discussion last night about um, Abraham and righteousness. And I told her this thing of Abraham was declared righteous. Because he heard, heard the voice of God and that little knowledge that he had of God, he responded to that. He obviously didn't have an understanding of, of the cross. And I said, you know, we just discussed whether an individual can be in right relationship with God. They may not have an understanding yet of who Jesus is and the cross and what that means or the blood of Christ, but they've, they've heard something of God and that resonates with them and they go... They, they give themselves to that little bit of information. But they're unclear about the cross. And this person said to me, Stephen, does that, that's me. That's me. She said, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, I feel God speaking to me, God coming into my world. I don't understand Jesus, I don't understand the cross. It just doesn't make sense to me. I'm so unclear about that. But I've had this thing of God hanging over my life, and I believe in that. Does that mean that I am possibly right with God? And I said, I don't know. I suspect that if that is the case, then Give yourself to that. And ultimately that will lead you to a revelation and understanding of the complexity of the cross and the life of Jesus. But keep responding to whatever it is that God has said to you and yield to that and you'll be okay. I came away from that, my happiness is a lot deeper and a lot more intense than that. I came away from that moment thinking, God... Are you bigger than what I ever envisaged you to be? And are there people out there in my world and your world that are somehow mysteriously connected to God, journeying with God in their own way on a trajectory towards the cross and an understanding, a greater revelation of who Jesus is? Say, don't stone me for that one. I'm still working through it, but it's a wonderful thought.